Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Exam Study Experts podcast. If you've listened to the show before, you've heard me talk about the importance of spaced retrieval practice when it comes to learning faster and remembering more. If you need a reminder, episode 66 is a great place to check it out. Uh, And indeed, if you're new to the idea, that's a great place to discover it for the first time. But is there anything else we can learn from the psychology of memory that might be helpful for us to use as students? Well, I thought it'd be fun today to share five little features of memory uh, that psychologists have discovered over the years through their investigations. Five little memory effects, if you like. Uh, These are not the five things that on their own are going to transform the effectiveness of your learning strategy. That, again, would be spaced retrieval practice, episode 66. But I do think these five things that I want to talk about today can potentially unlock some pretty handy additional advantages for us as students. They're not all going to turn your world upside down uh, on their own. But, you know, I think there's at least one or two ideas here that are actually quite important to to talk about. Uh, And if nothing else, the rest are pretty interesting effects. So we're going to have some fun. Let's go. In at number five, and actually number four, um, I'm rolling these two into one, is is the recency and primacy effect. Uh, And I'm going to talk about these together because they're so highly related. In fact, some psychologists use the general term serial position effect to describe both of these effects in one breath. But that's a bit of a dry, dull term, so I like to talk about recency and primacy, so I'm going to use that. But, But what are the effects? Well, the primacy effect says that you're more likely to remember items from the beginning of a list of items that you're trying to learn, while the recency effect states that you're more likely to remember items from the end of the list, the more recent items you looked at, assuming you worked down the list in order. The terms were actually coined coined by our old friend Herman Ebbinghaus, uh, who was a very famous psychologist working in the late 1800s, which is practically prehistory by the standards of modern psychology research, most of which happened in the uh, 20th 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, If you've heard of the forgetting curve, that's Ebbinghaus. Um, If you haven't heard of the forgetting curve, by the way, I've linked up our blog article on the subject in the show notes, examstudyexpert.com forward slash Ebbinghaus hyphen forgetting hyphen curve. I'm not going to spell all that out. Just look for the link in the episode description if you want to check out some more details on that. But when it comes to the recency and primacy effects, various explanations have been theorised. So for the um, primacy effect, perhaps we remember those first few items on the list better because we're more engaged when we're looking at those early items. We can dedicate more kind of processing power to them um, before we start to get our mind jumbled and and overloaded with loads and loads more items as we work down the list. Um, And when it comes to the recency effect, so we remember the items at the bottom of the list best, perhaps we remember those items better because they're still fresh in memory, having been the last thing we looked at uh, before we no longer were studying the test and before we started to switch to remembering the items. The recency effect, as you might therefore suspect, tends to fade away uh, if there's a gap, a time gap, between 
the learning event and the test event. So that's perhaps not a terribly helpful effect for students, uh, unless you're cramming right up to the moment you walk into the test or exam, which is perhaps not the best idea anyway. Um, But the primacy effect, however, could offer a handy practical takeaway. If nothing else, if you've got long lists of similar kinds of items to learn, long lists of vocabulary in languages would be a great example of this. Sometimes you might want to start learning the list at the bottom, not always starting it from the top, because the primacy effect would suggest you're more likely to learn the items that you look at first, best. So don't always learn the list in order. Give yourself some practice of uh, learning the list, ideally with retrieval practice, testing yourself, um, starting at the bottom of the list, uh, as well as working down from the top as you would normally. So that takes care of items four, five, and four on our list. In at number three is the von Restorf effect, or the bizarreness effect, or as I learned it, the sore thumb effect. Um, This is the proven psychological theory that the more something stands out from the crowd, the more likely it is to be seen. And when we pay attention to things, we're more likely to remember them. We can't remember or learn anything if we haven't paid attention to it in the first place. This one, uh, perhaps of all of the ones on the list, is is the hardest one to to kind of find a practical application for. But uh, it so often kind of comes up in the context of learning lists of items. And, you know, when you're talking about the recency and primacy effect, the von Restorff effect, so having an item on the list that's just weird and kind of completely stands out from the herd, uh, you know, that that often kind of comes up when when you're thinking about this this general idea. So I wanted to include it. Um, When it comes to practical applications, though, I think the best example I've got is if I was trying to learn items in a list and there was maybe one item that just wasn't sticking, perhaps I'd write over it in a second colour just to make that item stand out a little bit better. Um, And maybe even that helps to trigger like a little visual memory of that item standing out in the list. Uh, For more on learning lists of items, by the way, do check out the episode on chunking and mnemonics, which is episode 76, uh, for some good strategies on helping you with your list learning. In at number two, we have the spreading activation model. So this is a model of memory that thinks of memory as being like a big network of interconnected nodes. And each of the nodes represents uh, like an idea or a fact or a concept. Related ideas or concepts are nearby or sort of adjacent nodes within this sprawling network. Web, if you like. As you activate each node, in other words, as you sort of remember or or think about a given idea or fact or concept, further activation may spread to nearby parts of the network. In other words, Nearby idea, nearby ideas in the network, uh, so related facts, concepts, start to get sort of almost like a little bit warmed up, a little bit excited. You haven't fully kind of thought about that idea or remembered it yet, but it's sort of a little bit act, a little bit activated, and that might make it easier to actually bring to mind those kind of related ideas. To kind of give you a slightly better handle on this, uh, the world of priming studies has lots of great evidence that's consistent with this. Um, Priming is basically exposing someone to an idea or concept that affects what they later perceive. So, for example, if I were to be having a conversation about what our favourite fizzy drinks are, and suddenly someone interrupted and asked you to name a big multi-billion dollar company, 
you'd much more likely to come up with Coca-Cola as being your example. Whereas if, of, of the billion dollar company, um, whereas if we were comparing our shiny new phones, um, I don't have a very new phone, by the way, uh, for, for the record, mine is about five years old. Um, and I... Um, uh, came and someone came along and asked you the same question, so asked you to name a big multi-billion dollar company, you'd be much more likely to say Apple in that context. So both Coca-Cola and Apple are valid examples of big multi-billion dollar companies, so they fit the question. But the particular example that comes to mind is affected by the context, is affected by what your mind is thinking about. Either you're having a conversation about drinks or you're having a conversation about uh, phones and technology. This actually leads to one of my secret little example tricks. So you know that feeling, I'm sure, when you're sitting there in the test, in the exam, trying to remember an idea, someone's name, say, um, and you need this idea to be able to address the exam question, or it's like a key part of the essay you want to write about. You you know you know it, uh, but you just can't recall it. It's sort of there in your brain somewhere. You know you've looked at it, you know you've learned it, but you just can't seem to access it. Well, the spreading activation model can come to our rescue. So what you do is you start brainstorming related ideas, related concepts, related facts, and potentially actually write them down, particularly if you've got some rough paper to hand. So in that example where you're trying to remember a person's name, what did that person do? What other names are they associated with? When did they live? Where did they live? What are they most known for? If they are um, a creator, is there a specific, um, you know, piece of music they've composed or a novel they've written or a play they've written you know what are the names of those works the more you start to kind of warm up your memory in this general area this general area of the network with all the nodes related to this person um, all that related information you've stored that's kind of connected to this person gradually warms up the node which stores the name of that person itself until suddenly, in a flash of recollection, you remember the name itself and you remember the person's name that you're searching for. It does work. It does work. I've been there. I've used this idea. And, and actually, not just in an exam context, sometimes in everyday life, if I'm trying to, you know, that when something, an idea is on the tip of your tongue or you know, someone's name, it could be, uh, you know, when you kind of think around the topic, you kind of think around the concept and, and think of, oh, if it was a person, you know, where did I meet them? What other people do I associate them with? Do we have mutual friends? What are their names? Like often that is enough to trigger memory for the actual thing you're trying to mem- to, to recollect. That's pretty cool. By the way, uh, I have a whole book full of helpful tricks to get you more marks in the exam itself. Uh, if you haven't come across it so far, it's called Outsmart Your Exams. Uh, you can Google for, you know, just put into Google Outsmart Your Exams uh, and it should pop right up, both the uh, the website for it, my, my own webpage for it and the uh, the, 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 the store on Amazon that, that sells it. Um, or you can follow the link in the in the episode description uh, if you're interested in checking that out and potentially getting hold of a copy of your own. And finally, in at number one, we have context-dependent recall. I've saved perhaps my favourite till last. Context-dependent recall is a surprisingly powerful effect that's been well studied in a whole range of different, well, contexts. At its heart, context-dependent recall says that if the environment you're learning in is more similar to the environment you later have to recall the information in, your recollection will be facilitated. The classic study here was done with divers learning and remembering in and out of water. So, 
If a diver learns some new information while she's underwater, she will recall more if she takes a later memory test while underwater than if she takes the same test while she's on dry, dry land. The flip of this also works. So if you take a diver, uh, a different group of divers, and teach them some information on land, that group will recall more if they take their tests on land than if they take their later memory tests in the water. I was really struck by the power of this recently, actually. I was, I was out for a walk in some beautiful hills up in the Lake District in England, if you know it. And I was walking a trail that I'd last walked several years previously, maybe three or four years previously. And the interesting thing was, as I walked specific points of the, points of the path, on at least a couple of occasions, memories, really strong memories came blasting back about specific conversation topics that had uh, that I'd been talking about with my walking companion at that time, like three, four years ago when I last walked that path, I could remember what I was chatting about. And um, in this particular instance, my wife and I had been shooting the breeze about uh, you know features that our like our dream home might one day have, um, things like fireplaces and you know and beautiful view of the countryside and that kind of thing. Um, it was fun to fantasise, but I hadn't given the conversation a moment's thought since. You know, three four years had passed. I'd not even given that conversation a, a moment's thought until I walked back over that same part of that path many years later, and and suddenly it just came back so so clearly. Uh, it's it pretty amazing. So what does all this mean for us as students? Well, potentially quite a lot, I think. And I don't see this being talked about very much. Here's the thing. If you find it hard to bring your A-game on exam day itself, and let's face it, you're not alone if that's the case. It's it's a pretty common complaint. Uh, and one of the reasons I wrote a whole book on exam technique and doing your best in the exam, uh, outsmart your exams. Um, think about this for a moment. Picture your study environment. Where do you work? Where do you study? Just picture that. And then picture the exam hall environment. Where do you take your tests? Where do you take your exams? They're probably pretty different in countless ways. Uh, the decor, the room size, the background noise, natural light, lack thereof, uh, the general atmosphere, who's around you. Are you on your own? And th- this thing isn't just about memory either. This, this, there's obviously a, a kind of element of the context-dependent recall effect. Um, but I think it's more than that as well. The, the unfamiliarity of the exam hall setting can often unsettle us, making us feel more nervous. So the tip here is to think about whether you can find an environment to study in for at least some of your study time that feels a little bit like an exam hall. So you're probably looking for a slightly larger space, ideally with a silent but studious atmosphere, you know, lots of other people around you working quietly. Um, Maybe your college or your university has such a space, or perhaps there's a library in your town with a reading room that fits the bill. I've even known some of my my younger clients who are still at school uh, take mock exams in their wherever their mum or dad goes to work in the, in their office. Uh, that can work great because now you're surrounded by lots of unfamiliar people working away, and it has that slightly intimidating atmosphere that you you know you're wanting to start getting used to. Now you don't have to exclusively study in whatever space you find, but if you can get in at least some practice there, you'll start getting used to exam conditions in your practice, and you'll find it easier to succeed on exam day. And that's what it's all about. 
So thanks so much for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, little adventure into the uh, science of memory and, and some of the other aspects of memory we don't often talk about so much and how we can start to turn those to our advantage and gain some little wins as students. Uh, if you're a regular listener, by the way, and you haven't already got the memo about this, uh, I'm so sorry I've not been very consistent with the podcast this year. It's It's been a pretty difficult year for me personally, health-wise, uh, and with a new baby to look after as well. Um, I'd just like to say thanks so much for your patience and your support in the meantime. Uh, I'm glad to say things are looking up, uh, and I'm excited to share lots and lots of new content with you in 2023. Um, I hope to at least release at least a couple more episodes in 2022, uh, including next week, which is actually a new format I'm trialling, a takeover episode where a podcast listener interviews me about a subject they want to understand in more detail. So next week, uh, you're going to meet a really nice guy called Max, uh, who's going to be grilling me about proper flashcard technique. Uh, It's a really interesting conversation, I think, because the devil is so often in the detail. uh, Max does a great job of probing those finer details and getting straight to some important points that are easily overlooked, even by seasoned flashcard users. So do join me again for that uh, and look out for lots more coming your way. Uh, As I say, at least one or two more episodes for 2022 and then getting back into regular episodes from 2020. 23. Uh, I'm really excited to share all that with you. For now, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a huge pleasure to have your company again, and I'd just like to wish you, as always, every success in your studies. Just before you go, did you know you can hire William as your very own coach and mentor to show you the stress-free way to ace your exams by studying smarter, not harder? Find out how at examstudyexpert.com slash coaching.